Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity, in which we look at the variety of Christian groups that existed in the first centuries, including those that have traditionally been called heresies, and the struggles that are going on among the various types of Christianity. The different views, beliefs, and practices that were held by different groups of Jesus followers will be our main focus in this podcast. In the previous episode, we began to delve into this diversity by looking at opponents in the literature. In particular, we began to introduce the Joannine epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In this episode, we delve into now the opponents that are evident within 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In this discussion of the opponents of John's epistles, I am particularly indebted to the work of Raymond Brown, who has done considerable work precisely on this issue. So feel free to consult his book as well on the topic, The Community of the Beloved Disciple. To begin with, though, I hearken back to something you've learned if you've been listening to the series Paul and His Communities, so that you have a better basis on which to understand the opponents both in the Joannine epistles and the opponents we'll discuss in the next episode, the opponents of Ignatius of Antioch. Namely, we'll be delving into two main types of opponents, Docetic opponents that we'll be explaining today, and both Docetic and Judaizing opponents, as Ignatius calls them, that we'll find next week as we delve into Ignatius' letters. So I hope you enjoy this exploration of the variety of Christian groups that existed in the first centuries. Remember that you can also consult my website, philipharland.com, to read more about early Christianity. Let me remind you of something we looked at in Paul's letters that will be helpful in looking at the forms of Christianity we'll see in the Joannine epistles and in the Ignatius epistles, in particular, will help us understand the opponents to some degree. You'll already have a little bit of a basis from our discussion of Paul and his communities to understand the Docetic opponents that we're going to get into, Docetism, and to understand what Ignatius would label the Judaizing opponents. In Paul's letters, we've encountered cases where Paul opposes followers of Jesus who adopt opinions that are somewhat related to each of these two categories. What I'm talking about is in 1 Corinthians. When Paul wrote his letter to the Christians at Corinth, there were a variety of Christians there. You couldn't assume that every Christian at Corinth thought the same thing. So there's even diversity in one city. But among that diversity, there were groups of followers of Jesus at Corinth who said that there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection. Do you remember that? It's in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. The rationale to some degree was what you could call maybe a platonic way of looking at things. Namely, Plato, the philosopher way back in the 300s BCE, who influences subsequent philosophy and any educated person is influenced by it, Plato thought in terms of the body being a prison from which you want release. And that that helped us to understand the perspective of these Jesus followers at Corinth who said there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection. Why? Because you wouldn't want a body. You want to escape the body. You want your soul to escape the body. So already we've come across Jesus followers who downgrade bodily related activities and think in terms of releasing oneself from the body as the important thing. Now, we won't go into Paul's response, but he emphasized that there is a bodily resurrection. He's an apocalyptic Judean 
who, as part of a scenario at the end, has the raising of dead bodies from the grave to be judged. But these other followers of Jesus have affinities with what we're going to explain soon, docetism. It's not the same, but some affinities. The other group of opponents in Paul's letters that will help you understand a little bit when we get to, to the discussion next week in Ignatius' epistles are Paul's opponents in Galatia. In Galatia, Paul encountered a difficulty. After he had left there, remember Paul advocates the Gentiles can join the Jesus movement without being circumcised. Paul leaves, and when he left, opponents, whether or not they thought of themselves as opponents, he makes them opponents for sure. But other followers of Jesus, other leaders, passed through advocating that Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to belong to a Judean movement. And so the battle Paul had was against opponents who you could label, if you wanted to, Judaizing opponents. As long as, as a scholar, you're not giving value judgments to it. In other words, he was combating other types of Christianity that were thinking that it was more important to fully follow Judean ways of life, even among Gentiles. And so there we encounter, back in the 50s CE, an opponent of Paul that gave us a glimpse into diversity of early Christianity that showed us not all followers of Jesus are thinking the same and doing the same, that also has affinities with what we're going to see here in the late 1st and into the 2nd century CE, these two main groups. The Docetic groups we're going to explain today and next week, and the Judaizing opponents of Ignatius that we're going to get into next week. Okay, let's get into the situation now and into these opponents in particular that gives us a glimpse into what's going on in this Joannine community. We're in a particular brand of Christianity, and we're soon going to see within that brand of Christianity there's a schism that has already taken place by the time that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are written. So we have followers of Jesus, all of whom use the Gospel of John, and all of whom are part of this joining community. And some of them have left over some issue. And we've got to figure out what that issue is, and we'll soon see it has to do with their view of Jesus. This schism comes out in several main passages that we'll work our way through here. And we want to understand who they are as best we can, and not just dismiss them as, oh yeah, they're some marginal group. They don't count. Well, they were part of the group that John the Elder was part of. They have their own views of Jesus, and as historians, we want to understand what they did and what they believe as best we can. Take a look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. There's more, you couldn't get a more explicit statement of a schism. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all know. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and know that no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. But this is what he has promised us, eternal life. So far we've got a very clear statement of a schism. They went out from us. And there's a them and us already going on. 
And it's a schism within the Joannian community. It used to be us. It used to be just the group that left used to be part of us. It used to be part of the Joannian community. They've left for some reason that's obscurely referred to here. And it's unpacked a little bit more in other passages. But first I want to draw your attention to the language of attacks between different types of Christianity that we see very strongly here. The type of rhetoric you encounter when one Christian disagrees with another is very stark rhetoric. In this case, it's not that John the Elder knows of some Jesus followers he never knew before and he disagrees with them and he's, talk he's talking about people who used to belong to his community. What does he call them? Very strong language. This is the first and only occurrence in the New Testament of this term, antichrist. He calls them antichrists. Not only does he say, I don't agree with their view of Jesus, and they really should change their way, he says they're the opposite of everything that Jesus is about. Remember that these people used to belong to this person's community. They can't be that far off from what they think, and yet this is the language that is used, antichrists. So far here then, we have the language of attacking heretics is a way of putting it. Maybe the supposed antichrist would call John the Elder an antichrist if we had a tractate from them. But look at the phrasing of what we get so far and what the issue is about. It's not clear yet. Verse 22 mainly. Who is the liar? He calls them liars too. Antichrists and liars. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. This is a very obscure reference. We have to figure out what this author means by this. Because if we suggest that it's literal, in other words, that his opponents deny Jesus is the Christ and they deny the Father and deny the Son, well, what have they got left? Absolutely nothing. So obviously that, the literal interpretation here, doesn't work. Thankfully, later passages give us an inkling as to what this author means when he says someone denies that Jesus is the Christ. What this author means when he says that someone denies both the Father and the Son. But that's the language so far. Denying Jesus is the Christ and denying the Father and the Son. That's what's attributed to the opponents. We've got to figure out what they really think or what is the real issue that leads him to accuse them of this. Let's move forward to another key passage. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. That will help us unpack what these other Christians think. We're trying to get into another form of Christianity and get a sense of what this other Joannine group believes that is different than what John the Elder believes. Chapter 4 of 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Once again, referring to this group leaving. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Finally, we've got something more. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. From the historian's viewpoint, thank goodness for this one sentence here, because it gives you the key to interpreting the previous passage we just read. Here it says that people who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in the flesh is the key phrase here, are wrong. So for this author, John the Elder, to say that Jesus did not come in the flesh, whatever he means by that we got to unpack, is the equivalent of saying you don't even confess Jesus at all. The equivalent of saying denying that the, Jesus is the Christ and the equivalent of denying the Father and the Son. The issue here has something to do with the flesh of Jesus. 
So these other people who belong to the joining group, maybe all along, had a different view about Jesus' flesh. Now it has led to a schism. Obviously, the flesh of Jesus has other implications, though. You know that some forms of Christianity, and it seems that John's gospel to some degree has this, that the idea of Jesus' death in the flesh is linked to his atoning for sins, isn't it? The fleshliness of Jesus is linked for some of the Joannine community with the whole notion that Jesus was the last Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist calls him in the, in the narrative. There's implications, isn't there? If you think something different about Jesus' flesh, you can have implications on how do you interpret Jesus' death in relation to forgiveness of sins and other issues like that. So there's something more to it. But to summarize, it's all over the flesh of Jesus, the diversity that's developing here. Look further in this same chapter because it keeps going on about the opponents. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you heard that it was coming and now it is in the world already. Little children, you are of God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, what they say is of the world and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we're seeing more of the language and the rhetoric that's involved in one follower of Jesus claiming that they have the right view and someone else has the wrong view. Now, what I've said so far and what I've argued so far about these opponents is heavily indebted to a particular scholar. The scholar's name is Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown thoroughly studied the adjoining epistles and thoroughly studied these opponents. And what I've said so far about them is highly informed by him. The main thing that Raymond Brown says that, that I'm indebted to is the idea that both the opponents and John the Elder, in other words, both John the Elder's group and the opponents are using John's gospel. And both of them are interpreting John's gospel differently. And it's all over their interpretation of the high Christology of John's gospel as opposed to the flesh aspects that come out in John's gospel. And these two different groups have two different ways of interpreting things like Jesus being stabbed on the cross and water and blood coming out. And two different ways of interpreting in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and all that stuff. And actually interpretations of John's gospel are the reason for the schism. Different interpretations. The issue here in what is interpreted differently is the flesh of Jesus. We've just already got that. Let me give you a little context and let me explain a term that will help you when you get to Ignatius' epistles, although we may not have it here in full-blown sense. Scholars develop the term docetism. Docetism comes from a Greek word meaning to seem. Dokeo is the Greek word that you would use in a sentence to say, it seems like I am quite ill today when you're implying that it may or may not be the case that something is, or when you're implying that it's likely something only appears to be something, but it is not. That he seemed to be an honest guy when you find out some guy did something terrible. He seemed to be an honest guy. That's the way in which the word seem is being used here. He seemed to be an honest guy. Turns out he wasn't. Appearances are tricky is another way of putting it. And so docetism is used to describe followers of Jesus who said that Jesus only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. It only, he only seemed to have human flesh in a full sense, but he didn't really have it in a full sense. It was only an appearance of humanity. It appeared to be or seemed to be. So that's where docetism comes from.
And so here we may not have full-blown docetism, but what we definitely have in Joanine epistles is a downplaying on the part of these opponents, from the perspective of the elder, they're downplaying the fleshliness of Jesus. They're downplaying the flesh side and upplaying the divine side. John the elder has a different configuration and explanation of those two sides. He agrees in the flesh side and he agrees on the divine side, but he has a different way of explaining it. It's different explanations of how Jesus is divine and human that is uh, the central issue here and that has led to this schism. Let's look at a couple more passages that explain it a little bit further. Take a look at chapter 5 of 1 John, where it's not explicitly attacking opponents, but where it emphasizes the fleshliness of Jesus. And in fact, seems to be interpreting the sorts of passages we encounter in John's gospel, including that one where Jesus gets stabbed in the side. Chapter 5, verse 6 and following. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the witness because the Spirit is truth. So he not only was baptized, water is talking of that perhaps too, but that he was also truly human flesh with blood. In connection with the denying that Jesus came in the flesh that we've already encountered, it starts to piece together with that. Let's look at 2 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 11. There's debate about whether or not 1 John was written by the same guy who wrote 2 and 3 John. But regardless of who the author is, there's clearly the same situation going on. And here we have explained to us again in a different way. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Back to that same phrase. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone who comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting. For he who greets him shares his wicked work. Remember, again, these are people that used to belong to the same group as John the Elder. There's the emphasis on not acknowledging Jesus coming in the flesh. Even though they're formerly part of your group, it's not that you're not supposed to associate with them much. You're not even supposed to let them into your house. They're characterized as wicked, wicked antichrists. We don't get the perspective of these other people, whether they're saying the same thing about John the Elder and his group. We don't know. So the issue here is what seems to be coming close to docetism but it may not be full-blown docetism. And what I mean by that is this. Do the opponents say that Jesus was not flesh at all? Or do they have a different way of interpreting the passages in John's gospel about flesh in a slightly different way? Where they still say he was flesh and yet play up the divine aspect in a different way than John the Elder does. And to John the Elder, it sounds like they're denying the flesh. The other option is that it is full docetism. Full docetism would be that these opponents are saying Jesus was never truly human. Jesus, or better put, Christ was a divine being, the Word, who was with God, who came into this world to bring light and to share knowledge of God, knowledge of the Father. That divine being, the self-expression of the Father, never became truly human. He only appeared to be human. He only seemed to be flesh. If that is the case, if that latter full docetism is what these opponents hold, then they obviously do not have much of a place for the death of Jesus in their way of thinking. 
And that's what later develops in Christianity. You have plenty of forms of Christianity who don't really care at all about the death of Jesus because they have this platonic way of thinking that flesh is bad, so the last thing in the world you want is a divine being to be part of flesh. And that is a way of summarizing some of what develops into Gnosticism in the second century. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>